It is my favorite month of the year. It is Nonprofit November on the Crown Yourself podcast. What does that mean? It means that this November, which is the giving and gratitude season, I am bringing to you a nonprofit leader or CEO who I just resonate with their message, with what they're doing in the world, with how they're serving and showing up, with their cause, with how they are doing some phenomenal work and doing putting good into the world. Now, you know that as an entrepreneur, I believe that our businesses can be vessels of conscious capitalism. It is our businesses as small business owners and medium-sized business owners, and even for those of you who are very large business owners, those businesses are what is making this world's economy go around. And it is the love and heart and service of these amazing nonprofits that I'm going to be bringing to you every week this month in November to show and use some amazing new causes or maybe new perspectives about causes that you maybe haven't thought about. And if it feels aligned, I want to encourage you in the season of giving to open your hearts and possibly your pocketbooks to support these nonprofits if it feels aligned. The first nonprofit that we have is Common Ground Campus. Common Ground Campus was co-founded by my friend Hamachek. The work that Common Ground is doing, I could not think of a more important one to kick off right now at this time in our history, in our world, with everything that's going on and the divisiveness in this world, than Common Ground. Because what Common Ground does differently is it does not bring campuses together for a debate. They're not debating right versus left, Democrat versus Republican. They are trying to find some form of common ground and the power of perspective and unity that can come when we find that common ground and we bridge the divide. Because here's the thing, divide and conquer has been a tactic that has been used in war. And we are currently in a war of our consciousness, a war of our minds. And thus, if we can elevate our consciousness to a place of finding unity, where we can agree to disagree sometimes, and this does not mean agree to disagree. This means finding some common ground and some awareness and some perspective that comes when you bridge that gap between what you think you know and what you know you know and what others think they know and what others know they know. Because all we have is perspective. And if we can find a common ground of shared perspective, then we have a path to move forward. Otherwise, we are pitted against each other, fighting side versus side. And we see that now more than ever in our world. And it's scary. Quite frankly, as a mother, I look at it and it 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 scares me. Why I am so honored to bring Brent Hamachek and his work with Common Ground Campus, because at a grassroots level, being able to do this work and find a way to bridge the divide, it uplifts our consciousness as humans beyond the tactics of divide and conquer that have been used in war and used in our media and used all around the world. Like you look at it, if you look at the world through this lens, you will see how many ways divide and conquer is being used. But I really truly believe 
as conscious leaders and as humans, we have far more in common than we have in division. And when we can find that common ground and we can find that unity, that's how we'll start to find peace and a way forward where no more children are getting harmed. That is how we can find a way of peace and a way of unity where we can move forward together in love and at least mutual respect for each other's humanity. And so with that, I am honored to bring you Brent Hamachek. Welcome to the Crown Yourself Podcast, where together we build your empire and transform your subconscious stories about what's possible for your business, body, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm a master mindset coach, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, known to my clients as a game changer. Each week, you get the conscious leadership strategies you need to help you reign with courage, clarity, and confidence so that you too can make the income and impact you deserve. Imagine this podcast as your royal invitation to step into your full potential and reign in your divine purpose. Your sovereignty starts here and your reign is now. Brent, I could not think of a more needed reason for common ground than right now in this time in, in human history. What is Common Ground Campus and what is it that you do? So, uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me as a guest, Kimberly. I appreciate it. Uh, your support of what we've been doing has been uh, noticeable and exceptional and greatly appreciated also. Uh, so Common Ground Campus is a very unique sort of program where what we do is we go to a high school or college campus where the students identify for us an issue that's causing division on campus, sort of a broad topic. For example, uh, in this November, we're doing an event at Hope College in Michigan, and the students have asked us to come in and uh, deal with topics under the heading of diversity, equity, and inclusion, something all Americans are quite familiar with today. And then what we do is we round up students and put them on stage in front of their peers with the camera rolling, and they're of differing political views. And we have them take turns identifying some particular concern that they have that falls under that topic heading, right? And so then instead of debating something around the concern or issue or want that they raise, we, through moderated discussion, we have other students on the panel ask them questions, offer ideas, suggestions, say where they're coming from, ultimately all working towards finding a way to solve and address, address and solve, I should say, not good with words, I apologize, to address and then solve the concern that that first student raised. In other words, to find common ground. So we do not uh, debate uh, issues. There's no debating allowed. Uh, the audience is told before an event starts that they, if they hear anybody say the words, you're wrong up on stage, they're supposed to make the buzzer sound in unison. And uh, so far, by the way, many events in, we've, we've not yet had the audience have to make the buzzer sound. So I guess the admonishment at the beginning works. But it's been very interesting and very successful. The one last thing I'll say before I allow the next question is that what's really fascinating in, in my role as the moderator of these is to realize as you're listening in real time on stage, these kids going back and forth, I can hear that they've found 
common ground, right? So ultimately I'll say, look, I've heard this, 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 and this from each of you. If we did this, would all of you be able to agree as a way to address this student's concern? It went all four heads not, of course, then we, we found common ground. What's interesting is I can see it listening to them. They don't realize they're finding agreement as it's happening. And there's something instructive on that in a larger scale for us to, to realize in society. Perhaps civilization needs a moderator. Perhaps civilization does need a moderator because I, I've seen it in my coaching practice when my before my clients have a breakthrough, I know that they're having the breakthrough and the realization before they're having it. And I can see that they're starting to piece the pieces together. And there's something to be said for that deep listening skill. I think we are, we've been so conditioned to, you know, promote having a voice, mm -hmm. but are we having listening ears as well? So how did you come to listen so deeply so that you can find that unity? Well, a, a big part of it comes from desire in general, and then some of it comes from specific background and what I'll call uh, inadvertent training, perhaps I'm an accidental tourist in my own life. But first of all, with regard to the commitment and the vision for it, to my uh, partner, Felissa Blazak, uh, who really is the mastermind behind creating the program and making it work uh, and all of those things, uh, she and I share this sort of passion that it's time to move beyond serving red meat to one side or another in this world of politics and it's time to, as we say in recovery, it's time to become part of the solution. And so um, we we like to say, the two of us, that you know, for a long time we were involved in a fight for saving the country, and now we're simply involved in a fight to save humanity. So we've, we've notched the obligation. We've taken the obligation up a notch. So we have the commitment to this, and we believe that it's important to do it. And when you believe it's important and you have commitment, a funny thing happens. You get all sorts of energy ideas uh, and, and you find ways to sort of make it work. And so from the inspiration comes a little bit of success. In terms of specifics, my own background and training, look, I've been doing uh, turnaround work as part of my business consulting now for over 23 years. And, you know, all turnaround engagements are always, they always start the same way. It doesn't matter the industry. You know, you get the top people of the company in the room on the first day. Sometimes they're lawyers and accountants and other people too. And basically, you know, I'd sit at the head of the table and say, look, folks, I know you're all scared, worried. Everybody's at each other's throats here. But if we don't walk out of this room in an hour or so with a plan that we can agree on and execute, you're not going to make payroll next week. And if you don't make payroll next week, it's game over. And so you're going out of business. And so my thought process in terms of what we're doing, it's a metaphor and perhaps literal, you know, America's going out of business. And so, um, in having had the skill set developed over such a long time in working with troubled companies and trying to find ways to have agreeable paths forward, that has helped me in the role of being a moderator because it's the same thing, right? It's just, you know, on some level, this is nothing more than behavioral psychology. 
nothing's anything more than behavioral psychology in reality, I think. The, I've seen the facilitations that you have and, and some of the videos, and it's really beautiful seeing the students engage in, you know, what the Greeks used to do, which is Socratic dialogue. And I think we've lost the art of conversation because of so much division. How can we start facilitating in our own lives that art of Socratic dialogue? and having a conversation even with opposing perspectives. So along the way, one of the, the unintended consequences of the Common Ground Campus uh, program is that it inspired my uh, friend Mel Cage, as she's known, or Melody Krell, her real name, to want to write a book on and create a 12-step program for Americans to get through this political mess that we have. And, and she was kind enough to select me to work on the project with her. That as we do this interview, that manuscript is finished and will be to press soon. So what do we do to make this happen? The first step is to acknowledge that as Americans, that we have an addiction and that our life has become unmanageable. And what we're addicted to is conflict. Our brains are actually craving it now. We're neuropathic for it. And in large part, not exclusively, but certainly it's been facilitated by social media. There's no question about that because it has become extraordinarily easy to hate in the third person. We can hate they's and thems. We can hate them from the comfort of our own bed. We don't even have to get out of bed. We can pick up our phone, hold it in our hand go on Facebook or X or Instagram or TikTok or wherever you want to go. And we can hate on people we've never met. And it can feel quite stimulating, right, to do that. And uh, so it is, of course, harder to hate people in the first person when you're actually hating the person in front of you, which is what the Common Ground Campus program tries to get at by having personal live onstage engagements between kids of opposing viewpoints. So the first step in having these kinds of conversations is to acknowledge the fact that we become addicted to conflict. And the Socratic method piece, one quick point on that, I know we're going to cover all sorts of ground here. One of the things that I suggest to people is the simple transposition of two common words in the English language, two two-letter words. Start to move from using the words it is to is it just the replacement the reversal of the those two words used together can change everything about the nature of how you engage with somebody because when you move from the declarative to the interrogative you drop defenses the fight-or-flight response in someone else sits still and perhaps they can actually listen, engage, think as they answer instead of argue as they respond, right? So try to reverse it is into is it and see what little what that little parlor trick might do for you in your social engagements. Oh, I love that linguistic tip because I get very linguistically nerdy. <laughs> and I think when you... We as humans, and I've I've seen this consistently, is we have a desire and a fear of being wrong. 
And it's like a deep, it's like if we're wrong, that strips away a piece of our identity. And that's why people hold so deeply to their held beliefs, to their political beliefs, to their religious beliefs, to their national beliefs, to, to, so they because they're so desperately scared of being wrong. Right. And in flipping, that's a brilliant, but the only way that you can grow is to be wrong about who you have been, is to be wrong in some way. It's the only way to, to growth. So how do we chart a course mm-hmm. to find, to find those spaces that are okay to explore? And I, I hesitate to say safe, but because safety as is an illusion, but the the safety of within our own beliefs and identity, because sometimes there are some more deeply held beliefs that we are like, nope, not ready to look at that one yet, but we can deal with a small one and start to shake the frame on that, those perspectives. Right. So, um, boy, you uncover with your statement just a lot of important stuff, to use a technical term. So a few thoughts. Um, Most people are familiar with the term uh, cognitive dissonance, but they don't necessarily know where it came from. And where it came from was in the 1950s, there was a um, couple of um, psychologists, sociologists, who had an opportunity to study a doomsday cult who had predicted the end of the world that was based here in Chicago, led by a woman, and uh, aliens were going to come and invade and destroy Earth. But if you were ready the day before, uh, they would lift you up and rescue you, right? And you'd be saved from the destruction. So they had all kinds of folks that stole all their worldly possessions, quit their jobs and other things, and joined this cult. And these uh, researchers were allowed access to the cult. And what they discovered in the name of the book where you can find this, by the way, not only is the book still on print, it's even on Audible. You could, which shocked me when I learned of it and went to look for it. I thought, wow, I have to go to a antique bookstore, an old library. No, it's on Amazon for like $9. But uh, anyway, it's called When Prophecy Fails. And what did they learn? They learned that when all of these people who had sold all of their wares and put all their commitment into this, when the spaceship didn't come to rescue them, and when the world didn't end as they thought, what did they do? They doubled down. We had the timing wrong. It's still going to happen. They couldn't cope with the idea that they had invested so much of their beliefs and actions into this that it was wrong. They couldn't do it. So instead of saying, wow, we really messed up and destroyed our lives and we better put things back together. No, just the opposite. And and so, and, and these folks coined the term to explain this of cognitive dissonance. We have puns of that in America today. And so it is so difficult. You know, we have a wonderful expression in recovery where we say you can't save your face and your ass at the same time. And so lots of folks are concerned with saving their face. And there's lots of cognitive dissonance. And the more evidence somebody might be presented with, with regard to what truth might be, the more they find a way to construct a position that allows them to save face for their original position. The greatest example of this, perhaps in all of Western civilization, is fresh. Actually, there's been, in all of Western civilization, there's two. 
I'll leave the first one. It's too controversial. Although the, the more recent one is controversial as well. And that is what we saw happen with the pandemic and the vaccines and treatment. So we know now, we know we have verified science that A, the disease was always treatable and B, the vaccines do damage. And yet, what do we have from those who insisted otherwise? We have a tripling down on the insistence that no, the vaccine worked and there was no way to treat this disease. These are just ridiculous, right? But for those folks, the spaceship didn't come. And since the spaceship didn't come, they must find a way to say that the spaceship will come still because they can't be wrong. Yeah, I think if we look at so much of society, like there is the the hope for the spaceship, very much so. Mm -hmm. And the fears of that not showing up and, and the doubling down. And I think now more than ever, we're seeing doubling and tripling down on beliefs, even when facts to the contrary. So looking at that, isn't that a lot of emotionalism? Isn't that like yeah. when when just our emotions supersede our, our logic and like what something is right there in front of us in our face as evidence and then beliefs to counter that evidence that are based in and rooted in emotion. So when emotions trump our thoughts and cognitive reasoning, how do we find common ground emotionally? Well, it's a wonderful question. You know, you and I met at an Atlas Society event, uh, you know, dedicated to the, the the 20th century mother or caretaker of reason, Ayn Rand, and objectivism, and this need for rational thought over emotional thought. Uh, and, and it is, quite frankly, uh, simply a matter of discipline. And it's an extraordinarily difficult discipline and seemingly harder for people to enact. You know, the ready aim fire is rational and fire ready aim is emotional and we emotion really properly used it's a very human thing and we ought not to run from it and we ought to embrace it and love it but it ought to be sort of the lubricant for reason but not a substitute and um people are extremely emotional these days and they're very visceral in their responses and in part, they're that way because they're looking to be that way because they're addicted to conflict. They want that. I mean, conflict, confrontation, those are, these are emotional things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, rational disagreement leads to questions, answers, thought, uh, discussion, counterpoints and counterpoints. Emotional confrontation, though, leads to a fight. And we want the fight. And we look for it. And one one of the things that um, I've argued for a long time, and and that we we point out in this upcoming book that I mentioned, is what we've done now as as individuals. And, and I'm going to use an example, and, and I think your audience will be able to relate to this. It is this quest that we have for purity, and conformity, and orthodoxy, and it's conformity and purity and orthodoxy to what our own belief. Here's a hypothetical example that is not too at all hypothetical. In your audience, every member in your audience will know somebody where within the last year of their life, they've seen this exact thing happen. They'll all know. 
let's say that you have two folks run into each other on the street. Let's say they're both pro-choice, big controversial issue in America today. And as they talk, uh, they're, they're meeting each other and they find out they're both pro-choice and they're quite excited, right? And then one of them happens to mention as they're talking, you know, but, um, but you know, the, this, the thing at the end of a pregnancy near the final days where they do this, what they call a partial birth abortion and the baby's partly born and the life's extinguished. You know, I can't go along with that. By the way, as I use this example, I'm making no value judgment here at all. It's just hypothetical. I could have picked anything. What happens with the other person? The other person then says, oh, well, then you're not really one of us, are you? You don't really support what we believe in. You're a false flag. You're a plant. You're gaslighting the movement. You aren't really pro-choice. What's happened here? Well, what's happened is that in their near universal agreement on the fundamental principles of being pro-choice versus pro-life, there's one area of disagreement and that other person will seize on that as an opportunity to hate the other person to criticize them, that you're not real. Why? Why would we do that? We, we fundamentally agreed with them on almost everything here. Well, we do it because it's our chance to have conflict. We're seeking it. We're looking for it. And if you are not pure, if you do not conform to what I think, if you are not orthodox on an issue, that I will find a way to condemn you, not a way to say, well, wow, we're pretty close. We should be able to work together on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, my husband brought up this comedian from, I think he's from the 70s, since he's a bit older than I am. He was, and I'll put leave the link in the, in the description because I'm totally going to butcher the ending. So just watch it, watch it and watch the build up. And it's like, oh, are, are, I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian too. And they, these two people meet on on the San Francisco bridge and they're, right. they're there and, and it's, oh, I'm what denomination are you in? I'm on this too. And oh, what? I, I'm the denomination from this denomination, and I'm that too. And then I'm the denomination from you know the doctorate of this th thing. Oh, I'm that too. And then I'm I believe this. And so they get so granular, and he mm -hmm. gets so granular into the beliefs that he goes, "Wait, you're the belief system of 1854," and I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> All right. And, and yes, that yes. is the desire for the level of purity in our belief systems that if somebody doesn't believe exactly every single little thing that we believe then suddenly there's no common ground and that's what happened there's there's something in neurolinguistic programming when um when i've taught this to companies that we go when you chunk up you get agreement so when you go into concepts and uh ideation and theory and what I call like the ism. So like the transportation or an ism. And then suddenly it's like, it's a broader concept, but the more granular and specific and detailed you get, the less agreement you have in general. So with the people's need for conflict and also our need for specificity, our addiction to conflict and our need for specificity, how do we juggle both without completely feeling alienated and alone that we're the only ones because i think also the common problem that we have because of the need for conflict and because of this 
uh, chunking down thought process to like granulated specificity that suddenly now we're met with the other problem, which is mass loneliness and mental health, a mental health crisis Mm -hmm. in this trifecta of a problem. Right. So interesting there. You just momentarily locked my brain because you put so much in it, it just backfired. This idea that we're addicted to conflict and and this this thing that we're finding with the way humans now in 21st century America are behaving towards one another. And we've talked about already this this sort of quest for purity, as I call it, and the fact that we're looking for reasons to disagree with people so that we can kick in our addiction, right? So I, when I was drinking, I was always looking for a reason as to why I needed to have the next drink. They were not terribly difficult to find. So I was always able to find one and we're able to find a way to be in conflict with people. You bring up that great little comedian story about Christianity. So there's, there's nothing new about humans doing this. Christianity may be uh, the single greatest historical example of it that's ever existed from its very early days and disputes between Paul and Peter uh, right up through the present time. And of course, all the different splits and disagreements over the last 2000 plus years. Great example of it. But this isn't the only problem. Because another problem is, you talk about the mental health issue. We are, as an American people these days and and i i get quite harsh on this uh my my metaphorical term is i just say this is not sparta and people will say well sparta ultimately failed and i'll say yeah it did but it had a pretty good run what i mean by saying we're not sparta is we're not terribly tough oh we're angry and belligerent but that's not a sign of strength that's actually of course a sign of just the opposite So we're petulant children who get angry and yell and scream and hate people, but who have skins that are so thin and insides that are so sort of weak and vulnerable. It's a bad combination. And I think it comes, you know, I was sitting with a friend at breakfast the other day. We were talking about all the issues facing America, all the different problems. And I said, you know, I think if somebody forced me to use only one word to describe everything that's wrong with the country, first of all, I wouldn't want to do it because it's not that simple. But if I had to, there's a gun at my head. The word I would use is opulence. And we sit in a time unseen, not just in all of human history, but anywhere else in the world. And man might not have ever been meant to be this physically comfortable because when we're this physically comfortable, it does not seem to bring out the best in us. It seems to generate just the worst in us because we have the time and the means and we have no consequence. Right. And so I think we're fighting some really big demons and trying to take this on. The first of which is just general awareness of what I just said. Mm. I love that because there's a big difference between opulence and abundance. And I know that Peter Diamandis is a mentor of mine, and he is the one who introduced me to the Atlas Society. And uh, Jags, the CEO, has been a, a member of 
the A360 mastermind and been a friend of mine. And so the belief system that is ingrained in that mastermind of, of people, brilliant people who are seeking to build a world of abundance is, is amazing because abundance sounds so great in theory and it can be it can, but the difference between abundance and opulence and i think abundance has to be rooted in some form of personal responsibility and taking ownership of your life your actions your habits yourself mm -hmm. and an individuation in order to then produce exponential abundance versus the exponential opulence that has been given to us as Americans that I do think we definitely take for granted because we have such a degree and a level of comfort. I mean, we can order food with a push of the button. We don't have to get out of the chair to argue with someone. We have the safety right. of the screen protecting us from the words that we use. And yet words, words can still pierce the other person on the other side of the screen. It takes a pretty resilient skin for to build that because it still hurts. So the opulence of that comfort and sitting in that comfort, and I think abundance has to be rooted in some form of discomfort of seeing how can things be better versus opulence is sort of an acceptance of staying in the comfort zone without any growth. Yeah. And, and so from this great position of comfort, again, I don't, I don't think that it brings out the best in us what it does do is it affords people the luxury of simply being able to say and do whatever it is they feel like saying and doing really with, without much consequence. What there's a proliferation out now. And especially again, social media, it's yeah. not, it's not causative per se or exclusively. It's partly causative and that it's partly a tool. And so there's sort of like an interaction that's going on, right? So there's no question that social media use has caused some of this. On the other hand, it's people using social media. So we can't say they, they didn't cause it also, right? So, but here's something that's interesting. So I'm, I'm very old. Your 1970s references, uh, they work with me quite well. I grew up in a time where we were surrounded by World War II veterans. And one of the things that I came to learn and understand, I had family members who had served in World War II. And um, I learned some stories about what a couple of them did, and it was really quite extraordinary. I learned it from other close relatives. But uh, then uh, there were other people uh, I know who had served in World War II who told all kinds of stories. These other relatives I had, they told very few. And one of the things I learned from veterans over time was that the ones who really saw serious action, the ones who really did something heroic, incredible, whatever it was, they didn't usually talk about it. But the ones who maybe had been stationed stateside working in the PX, uh, well, gosh, they would regale you with stories, right? And and so the, the lesson from that is that the ones who really had seen and done. The ones who knew in their own mind what they'd accomplished, what they'd been part of, they didn't feel the need to elaborate on that. But others who were on the periphery of it, well, they went to great lengths to elaborate, perhaps even in bed. 
And that's what we see today happening with people on social media. Truly, truly, truly thoughtful, intelligent people who are rational in their behavior, who have taken the time to learn and understand and know issues. They don't engage the way the vast amount of the populace does because those people have actually served time in the world of action and ideas while the other people were just working in the PX. And so we see a lot of this behavior uh, coming out by people who just want to say things, fight, tell stories, and tell you why they're wrong, and all of this sort of thing. Uh, I think there's a connection there. So how do we find common ground? How, like, what's the second step in recovery in order to really grow out of this addiction to conflict and to, to build our discomfort muscle in a way? Right. Well, you have to, you have to have the willingness, uh, to turn yourself over to rational thought, first principles, and get yourself, uh, back to the idea of really realizing that our national life has now become unmanageable because of this addiction to conflict. And so now it's time to step back from that and say, what are we missing? We're, we are missing rational thought. We are missing an understanding of what it means, what it was supposed to mean uh, to actually be an American. And, and when I say that it's not jingoistic, in fact, it's just the opposite. People associate, you know, I'm an American or, or, you know, I'm proud of my country. That make it sound like it's jingoistic. It isn't if you're saying it the right way. Because if you say it the right way, what you're saying is our founding fathers, who studied everyone from Plato forward, took a look because they, they were learned people and they were read, well read, and they, were, they understood the ideas and understand they were coming right out of the enlightened. And so they took the very best of humanity's ideas up until that point in terms of different systems of government that had been tried and failed or had some success different ideas about man's nature, good or bad, and different ideas about how man is meant to live with uh, individual maximum amounts of individual liberty and freedom or with tight control and oversight, right? They took all of this. They took 2,000 years worth of stuff, empirical and theoretical, and they put it together to design a system to keep us as free as we could be while protecting us from our own nature to want to go after one another. And people in this country need to have some appreciation of that. One of the things we point out in the book are the extraordinarily tough debate that took arguments that took place between our founding fathers on virtually everything. And the question we ask is, I mean, they disagree on fundamental stuff. The question we ask in the book, and it's rhetorical, is do you think that the people in America today could form a new country? The answer is no, we couldn't do it. We wouldn't be able to get through the differences that our founding fathers had. I mean, they were back and forth and right, Federalists and the Anti-Federalists arguing with one another. They had serious issues and they weren't talking about reforming a system. They were talking about creating one from scratch. 
and they figured it out. We can't agree on how to fix the border. We already have a border. We already have a system. We, we can't agree on how to fix that, let alone construct anything. And this is how we've devolved. One of the things I love is the, um, the example of the founding fathers is Lin-Manuel Miranda's research into Hamilton as he was creating it. And he said the debates were like, he, that's why he structured them as like gangster raps in the musical, which I thought was brilliant um, and a brilliant reference because they were that hardcore. They would print and not print retractions and they would viscerally go after each other in debate. And since Common Ground doesn't focus on debate, debate to me is like when it's approached in, I don't like to say the right way, but when it's approached in a way that presents growth, comes from iron sharpening iron. But it seems like now debate is just divisiveness. Let's, Let's polarize each other as much as possible. Let's so that I can attract the people who are attracted to my my side, they attract the people who are their side, and it creates that that polarity and divisiveness where it's not sharpening, it's just um, dividing even deeper and making the roots and neural pathways in our country even deeper. So how do we structure finding a way to debate mm-hmm. that where we can disagree on ideas but also find that that common ground that actually produces growth. Right. Well, so it all starts with the willingness to listen in this open, constructive way. So let's pretend. So, well, there's a number of ways to combat this, and my my brain is always a little circuitous and it's routing, so bear with me. Let's talk about what a debate is like today on a campus. A debate today is typically some student group will bring in two uh, experts from two different sides of an issue. And what they do is they fill the auditorium and they might have uh, half the students on one side supporting one and half supporting the other, right? And so then what do the two people do? They stand up on stage and they argue with each other for an hour. Sometimes it's comical in part, they make fun of each other. Maybe uh, sometimes it gets quite heated. Always within the audience, though, at the end, they will tell you, I guy won, and then they'll go out in the courtyard and they'll get in a fight with each other. Now, let's take our program and drop it in before that debate takes place on campus. Here's what we're trying to do. So we have an event where students get on stage and instead of debating things, they say, well, here's what I think is a race problem on campus at University of Georgia. And they share a problem they see. And then the students all sit and they say, well, yeah, okay, so I understand. Tell me more about why you think that way. Uh, oh, okay, get it. Wow, I haven't seen that before. I thought about it that way. Uh, but maybe we could do this. And we, we go around and we solve the problem. So let's say we did that on Tuesday. And let's say then that everybody in the audience for that event on Tuesday goes to a debate on Thursday. And they watch the same thing I just described at the beginning. Our hope, Felicia's and my hope, is that when they watch the debate Thursday, they take it in as spectators differently than they would have because of Tuesday. 
So what we're just trying to do is institute a method of stepping back for a minute and just listening, thinking, saying, I know what I thought about this when I came in. Doesn't mean I'm right or wrong, doesn't, but I'm going to listen to what I hear. Kimberly, one of the most instructive comments that Felissa gets after we do one of these and she interviews people in the audience, she will ask them the question. She'll say, do you think differently about this issue than you did before the event tonight? And invariably, the answer she gets is a form of, yeah, yeah, I do. I, you know, the other side, they made some really good points. And, you know, I never thought of that before. So uh, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to change the Thursday night perception of argument because of the Tuesday night experience of watching problems being solved. And do you have a system that you've kind of worked out on how to create some level of common ground and, and unity? I mean, there's the facilitation, there's the moderation that you do from your years of experience. But if you were to teach how to do what you do to others, what would be that process? Well, it's interesting that you'd ask that question. So uh, a few years ago, and I'm actually planning to drag this back out, your um, question might inspire me before this podcast airs to actually republish this and uh, make it a link. But a number of years ago, I posted a piece on what's taking place in terms of the breakdown in individual communication. It had followed an original piece of political theory I'd written about why the nation was divided and how that happened and the team structure we have. So then I broke it down to the individual level. Here's what I can tell you shortly. Uh, quick answer to this. Here's what I would urge people to recognize, urge them to recognize, that most people go into a discussion anymore on, on an issue with sort of this belligerent set of ideas that they know what's right, the other guys don't know, they know what the facts are, the other guys don't know, I'm right, they're wrong, right? And they have that attitude going in. I want you to imagine two perfect, perfected humans who decide they want to have a conversation about their disagreement on any issue. It doesn't matter what it is. Pick whatever you want. And they say they're going to do it in three days. Three days from now, they spend the next three days, both of them, studying the facts that relate to the issue. Facts are interesting things. We'll use a word you and I like. They are objective. They exist. There's a limited number of facts. On any particular anything, there's a limited number of facts. So when the people come back together three days later and they sit down, here's what these two perfected individuals fully intended on having a rational conversation. Here's what we can we know for certainty is that in their search for the facts, one of them will have found facts, the other one didn't find and vice versa. Each of them will have found some of the same facts and each of them will have not found some facts at all. So that means that every single time we engage with another human being, our conversations with them over any particular issue are in 
perfect, imperfect, by definition and default, they can never be perfect. And if we could simply realize that whenever we sit with somebody, I know some facts, they don't. They know some facts, I don't. And there are a bunch of facts that neither one of us know. That in and of itself will give us the humility we need to be able to talk to them in a more constructive way. You just said one of my favorite values, which is humility, of being able to put aside our pride and see through that lens that we don't know it all. And it's like, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect <laughs> that was studied, that the person who is in the room who thinks they know it all is probably the one who knows the least. Right, right. Now there's a great old song from uh, a group, since we're using old references, uh, Men Without Hats. Somebody will remember them from the 70s, the 80s. And they, they had a song called I Like, and it said, I like when they talk real loud, try to tell you all they know. And uh, with the inference, meaning uh, just the opposite. One more thing, if I could, with regard to this communication piece that's so important, that we just talked about the fact that we can't know all the facts when we talk to someone. And that's important. Here's the other thing we have to be so cognizant of. And if people can just do this along with the facts piece, they'll improve their communication skills with others overnight. We all We have an expression that says there's two sides to everything. Sounds good. Uh, it's, it's dribble, of course. The reason it's dribble is because there's actually an infinite number of sides to everything, or I should say there's about 8 billion. Because sides to things, what it really means is perspectives. So every single human being that takes a look at a situation and a set of facts is looking at it from their own very unique perspective. I had a political science professor, first year of college. We were sitting at a big giant uh, rectangular table in a room and he had us pull out a piece of paper and draw the table exactly as we saw it. And we all did that and then we all, he took our pictures in old days, he stuck them with tape up on the board. What did we see? We all drew the same table and no two pictures looked alike because our perspective in looking at that table was different based on where we were sitting. We have to recognize that our perspective, which is our life experience, where we grew up, how we were raised, the town we lived in, the school we went to, the friends we had, that perspective impacts how we see things. And more importantly, it impacts the way everybody else around us sees the same thing. And to disregard that, is to eliminate our ability to effectively communicate with people because they don't draw the table the same way we do. And we need to have that recognition. And then that's, perspective is okay. That's where we're sitting, right? And that's our life and that's given to us. So we have our perspective. The other part though is bias. And bias is what we have to, bias is sort of the cataract on perspective. It clouds the vision. So I have my perspective. That's okay. It's my life. I can't apologize for the life I've lived and where I'm at. This is how I'm looking at things. But now bias comes and it clouds the vision. And so we have to be willing to look at our biases 
that distort the view we have from the perspective that we've gained. Do that, you'll communicate better. Our bias is formed. Well, bias, you know, you think about it, it's really nothing more than the results of inductive logic. So some biases are good. We have a bias that tells us that if we step immediately in front of a high-speed train, we'll be immediately killed. We know this because tens of thousands of people over time have stepped in front of high-speed trains, and universally, they all died. So a bias can be good, but it is inductive logic, taking many examples of different data points and drawing them down into a hypothesis, right, that you can then test by stepping in front of the train, if you like. Here's the danger of bias. Bias inductive logic will also tell you that if you're at an intersection with a delayed light and the light goes finally from red to green, that you can drive through that intersection. Do that a hundred times and you're likely fine. Do it a hundred and first and you'll get creamed by a car that was paying no attention to the light and the guy was texting on his cell phone. So you can draw conclusions from your biases. You can use inductive logic, but you'd best be careful because those wrong conclusions can get you killed in a moment's notice. So understand that we have biases for a reason. They're just the result of inductive logic. And inductive logic is extraordinarily dangerous to draw general conclusions from because they might not always be right. Anybody, by the way, anybody, by the way, I can prove this to you. Have you ever had an email, an important email, end up in your spam folder? Well, the answer, of course, for everybody is yes. Understand that computers use inductive logic to decide if that message goes in your spam folder or your regular inbox. Every once in a while, your email pulls through the green light with a car that's running the red light. So be careful. Good example. Like, really powerful example and I'm thinking to that last email <laughs> it's uh Bayesian logic which is built on inductive reasoning and that's what computer systems use to, to sort our emails for us so where does emotion fit into this again the beautiful line that emotion is the lubricant of reason if we don't allow if we don't allow ourselves to be emotional creatures we lose the best of what can make us fully human. You know, well, let's sit on objectivism a little bit. You know, I think Ayn Rand's view of love was, uh, was extraordinarily good. And, you know, it was, it became for her that highest value that humans can achieve that notion of romantic love, but it was never built on some notion of codependence or, you know, feeling as though you need to rescue or save somebody or needed someone in order to make your own life worthwhile. It was about rationally taking a look at your own complete self, seeing in another that they would add to that experience and become this great value for you. And then allowing yourself then to feel that emotion of romantic love. And so for even the most rational person you could argue might have ever lived, or certainly the queen of rationalism in the 20th century, that human emotion, the experiencing of it, was the greatest value you could 
to. So we just ought not to, certainly, we should never substitute emotion for reason. And we should never make reason subservient to emotion. But we should embrace emotion to allow ourselves to fully experience the joy of a rational choice. I think that's a good way to look at it. At least that's the way I try to look at it. Yeah, I look at at emotions like from the perspective that they have to be owned as the individual. It's because so often we our our society is very programmed for conflict, addicted to it. And so instead of actually processing it and feeling those parts and all those yuck emotions of anger, sadness, bitterness, frustration, all of that, instead of processing it internally and recognizing that this is my emotion, we project it outwardly into conflict because that's socially acceptable. Right. And isn't that tragic that it is socially acceptable and people feed off it? You know, I, I think one of the, the best, worst examples is what we call today so euphemistically on social media, influencers. I mean, the vast yeah. majority of these people that we call influencers, I mean, first of all, um, most of them are imbeciles. They're just imbeciles. And you, you look at what they write and what they say and they're, you know, if, if the task were to, you know, deconstruct their argument logically for whatever it is on either side, you could de deconstruct it in a matter of moment with a logical frame. So they're imbeciles. Uh, but beyond that, they're dangerous imbeciles because most of them are trying to influence people in an aggressive, hateful way. They're not trying to inform somebody and get them to think. They're trying to gin up a mob. And this is something what we, we pay people to do. Advertisers pay them. Companies pay them to do this. Yeah, they're called they're called uh, useful idiots. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, right. I well, heard, actually, heard them called that. People. Yeah. Well, they're they're more the manipulators of the useful idiot. Because let let's make no mistake, it is the oh yes, in mass that have allowed themselves to be manipulated, and you know, to some extent. What, here's what I think we're starting to settle a debate on. We're settling a debate that goes back, you know, 2,400 years or so between Plato and Aristotle, student and student and teacher, and talking about man's nature as a political animal. Here's what we've learned in the 21st century. The answer is unequivocally yes and no. And we are political animals in terms of how we behave in our individual lives, our work lives and things, think about what we associate with political behavior, uh, deal-making, manipulation, trying to win people over, get them to our side, trying to build groups to support our positions, right? We are political animals in that sense. We behave that way, but not in the public square. We're not. It's it's provably false that people are political animals in the sense that we talk about politics. Most people don't get involved. And to the extent they are involved, they're uninformed. They're involved every maybe October of an election year. They go put signs out or something. We're not 
political animals in the public square. And I think that anybody who wants to make the argument otherwise ought to think again, because the evidence against it is overwhelming. Never in history has have men or women been afforded the opportunity to be political animals like they have been in the United States. And yet the vast majority of our 330 million people, many of them here legally, uh, the vast majority of our 330 million people, they stay out of the game. They're not really interested. So do you condemn them for that? Or do you simply say we had man's nature wrong? You know, uh, Ben Franklin famously said, we all know the line that, you know, what kind of government did you create for us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. And, and all of our founding fathers understood the need for citizen vigilance in order to maintain our system. Well, they didn't get it. And that's what we're living with today. How do we develop that care for communication? To find common ground and unity as a human race, because I think otherwise AI has been programmed on massive amounts of division. And I personally think that if we don't want AI to be like, you know, y'all can't handle this, I'm going to take over um, because of the divisiveness. And we have to rise into another level of consciousness and communication to show unity to some degree. All right, well, first of all, thank you. I think you're the first person who ever used the word uh, brilliant associated with anything I said who wasn't on mushrooms. So I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> Sam, not. <laughs> no, uh, thanks for the silver compliment. Um, look, what do we do? Well, we'll go back to the, the book that I mentioned that's coming out and you know, one of the key tenets of recovery is that you have to approach it with honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And and to some extent, it's really just that simple. And I don't want to answer such an important question with something that sounds overly simplistic or like a catchphrase, but let's think about it for a minute. You're saying, how do we get past this? Well, first of all, we have to be honest about acknowledging not just the problem in the country, but the problem in ourselves, right? The answer lies not in the stars, but in ourselves. We have to be honest about it. We have to own our share of this, right? We have to acknowledge that we're responsible. Then what we have to do is we've got to be open-minded enough to be able to start to listen to other people Think about, challenge our own positions, get rid of this notion of you can't save your face and your ass at the same time, decide that maybe we want to save our ass now as a people, as individuals, as a country. And then once we have all that, we've got to be willing to do something. And, you know, and I say this all the time, Kimberly, and, um, you know, I've said it to Felicia, just the two of us talking, you know, I'm, I'm proud of us. Right. And the reason I say I'm proud of us, and it might sound bad to anybody listening, not if they're an objectivist, though, they probably would like that. But everybody in the country sits back and says, wow, this thing's a mess. And, you know, it's not sustainable and we can't survive this way. Well, Felicity and I feel the same way, except we're not in our armchairs. We're on the street and we're on the campus 
when we're sitting down and we're working with students and we know we can't do everything, but we know we can do something. And we know we can't go on a campus and solve all their problems, but we know we can go on a campus and show them the problems can be solved. So Phyllis and I, uh, God love us for those who so believe, um, but we're doing something and we do it without naivete or any sort of overinflated sense of self or what we can do or not accomplish. We're simply doing the best we can. And I think if everybody would do the best they could, then we would all do better, which is uh, Felissa's tag phrase for the Common Ground Campus Program. Brent, I would I love this conversation and definitely uh, a beautiful intellectual conversation that is so desperately needed in these times about the power of logic and reason and and how to process emotions as humans and how to communicate. And I would love to shift gears and yes. get into a little bit of rapid fire to wrap Love. this up. All right. Who is your favorite female character in a book or a movie and why? Oh, favorite female character. That's easy. It's, and it's obvious. It's Dagny Tiger. It has to be. She is, I wrote about her as the ideal woman. She hit it spot on. Dagny Tiger is the ideal woman. What person would you want to trade places with just for a day to live in their life, in their mind, in either alive or when they were living? So uh, does that mean a, a current living person? A current or, living person or someone living in their time? Someone living in their time. Oh, uh, that's that's easy. I think that every human being should have the same uh, answer to this question no matter what their belief system is, there's only one you'd pick and that's Jesus Christ. Because if you could actually live inside him as him, you would have all the answers to what people have been fighting about for 2000 years. You might not like the answers or you might love the answers, but you'd have all the answers. So anybody who didn't pick Christ is making a bad pick. They just wasted the choice. You have the answers to everything about the human existence one way or another if you live inside of him for a day. So easy, easy answer. Awesome. Awesome. You are actually the first person to pick Christ. Most people pick Oprah. <laughs> uh, well, here I say that if you were to live inside of Oprah, at least there would be plenty of room in where you were living, but that's probably it. <laughs> I won't say that, but certainly it would be a spacious room. So what is your morning routine? to set you up for an epic, successful day facilitating conversations? Uh, roughly 80 ounces of black coffee, extra Starbucks, and uh, usually uh, sitting with a combination of reading a handful of trusted morning news sources and then listening to either lectures or uh, books. Um, Audio-wise, I find now that I'm an old man Reading's a bit of a challenge for me to read a book uh, just because it kind of, I get distracted. I kind of start to do the whole nodding off thing like us old people do. Uh, so I listen to tons of audiobooks and especially lectures. I like to listen to lectures, always nonfiction, no fiction allowed in my day. And so lots of coffee, a little bit of news, a little bit of intellectual stimulation, and off I go. And what is your nightly routine 
to set you up for a superior morning. Well, there's usually a trip to the weight room in between the morning and the evening, so I'm properly exhausted. Uh, evening routine is pretty darn simple. It's uh, British television and uh, Fresca. So I I love uh, I love British TV. Subscribe to all the all the uh, various platforms. All I watch is uh, British uh, sort of crime shows. The Brits keep their politics mostly out of their television. The actors are better than American actors. The stories are better than American story writers. It's not even close. And so, and I love to watch shows in particular about brilliant people figuring things out that no one else could figure out. So I'm drawn to those kinds of characters. So uh, fictional superheroes of intellect. So Sherlock Holmes. Ah, right in the middle, as you say that, right in the middle as we record this, of watching the 1980s British Sherlock Holmes show starred Jeremy Brett. If I can give your audience a television recommendation, it is watch the, that original Sherlock Holmes series. It is extraordinarily good. Oh, I would love to watch. I'm such a detective nerd. Oh, <laughs> I just love that. Anyway, here's the fun tip about it. It's you'll see right away. It's overacted a bit, but it's overacted on purpose. It's like it's a TV show that was done for British stage. And Jeremy Brett was a stage actor. I learned. Uh, so it feels like a little bit like you're watching theater, right? A little bit of overplayed, overacted a little, but on purpose and so well done. And the mysteries are amazing. Beautiful. And he always figures it out. Well, of course, he's Sherlock Holmes. What do you define to be your kingdom? My kingdom would simply be the, the people in and around my sort of circle of life, either who I've pulled in by choice or who I touch inadvertently, and trying to make some sort of lasting contribution to them that's meaningful. I have sent perhaps, I don't know if fear is the right word, but all sorts of folks have some level of concern over legacy, right? And um, they would hope that A, they wouldn't be completely forgotten when they go. And then B, if they are remembered, that perhaps they're remembered well. And then C, they're remembered well because of something they actually did that might have benefited someone else. Um, so these are these are the things that weigh on my mind as I enter the winter of life, and um, so my my kingdom are the the folks I touch, trying to be a benevolent member of the kingdom. Mm. And lastly, how do you crown yourself? Well, I think it kind of relates to the the question, the last question you asked. My greatest level of satisfaction comes from someone turning to me. And and sometimes, by the way, this is what I've been hired to do. And sometimes it's just me doing it for free, just helping. Sometimes it's business related. Sometimes it's personal. When someone comes to me because something is extraordinarily important to them and they are in a jam. And imagine in that moment when you're in a tough spot, whatever it is, you're thinking, what do I do? Who could I call who and and so they reach out to me 
that's incredible in and of itself, that somebody in that moment would reach out to you. But then, if and when that situation resolves in a way that's beneficial to that person, there's no amount of money you can pay me or applause you could give. That, to me, is I know the compliment they paid by coming to me for help, and I know what I was able to do to help them get through whatever it was, and that is extraordinary. Amazing. Brent, how do we find you? How do we get Common Ground Campus on our kids' campuses, on our alumni campuses? How do we spread the word about what you're doing and bring a little bit more unity to this country? Well, you can you can find me at the gym in a little while. <laughs> so, uh, but beyond that, look, uh, you can go to commongroundcampus.com uh, and you can uh, fill out the little, the simple contact form. You can also go to, we have started a foundation in support of the Common Ground Campus Initiative. So um, Phyllis and I have built this with our own time, treasure, and talent. We've proven the concept in the first year. And so now it's time for us to do what any entrepreneur would do in a business setting. And it's time to turn to the outside world for that next round. So if you go to Bridge charity.com bridgecharity.com you will find our foundation and um, how to contact us and so on and uh, if somebody believes in what we're trying to do we need support uh, we need people to put their money where their concern is uh, if you're one of those people that feels like the nation its current course isn't sustainable and something has to be done but your own demands of time in your life are such that you can't do it yourself. You can do something. You can help us do something. So I'd encourage you to do that. And anyone who writes me an email, uh, rented bridge charities, plural rented bridge charities.com. I write back to every human being that sends me a note. Um, I love them all and, uh, happy to hear from anybody, even if you want to say I'm insane. <laughs> I won't rebut that, by the way. I'll just try to explain why I'm saying Because we're all about finding that common ground. <laughs> exactly. We don't debate it. There's not debating it. Right. So, Brent, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Crown Yourself podcast. Thank you for this conversation. And as always, my fellow sovereigns, own your throne, mind your business, because your reign is now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If what you heard resonated with you, be sure to subscribe and start creating a bigger impact now by sharing this with a friend. Just by doing that one simple act of kindness, you are creating a royal ripple to support more people in their sovereignty. And if you're not already following on social media, connect with me everywhere at crownyourself.now for more inspiration. I am so excited to connect with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, go out there and create a body, business, and life that rules. Because today, you crown yourself.